It certainly is a blessing, isn't it, that we have been permitted to gather, to assemble as we are this evening. And certainly, as you perhaps have already noted in the title of the lesson, we'll be casting a rather strong spotlight on Jesus, our Savior. But to do so, we'll particularly look at the gospel according to Mark. I would hope that you'll be turning to that particular New Testament book. A moment ago was read in our hearing for Mark chapter 10, and that'll be a portion of our lesson this evening. As I designed this particular lesson, giving some thought to the consideration of it, I chose to do it as follows. The book of Mark, in fact, all of the books of the New Testament, as you and I know, it's our desire to increase our Bible knowledge, to give appreciation to the themes and topics and lessons of each one. A few weeks ago, we looked at the book of Philemon, and we appreciated again and again the beautiful teachings and messages found in that text. I thought tonight we would attempt to do that with Mark. Obviously, I had to arrange it somewhat differently because we wouldn't be able to do this book. It'd be a bit lengthier the same way we did Philemon. But I thought that at least since it is an account, a gospel account, giving us a one aspect of the life of Christ, that we would use the book of Mark to look anew at the greatest life ever lived. You'll notice as you appreciate some of the points on that slide, there are four gospel accounts, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them, although it presents the life of Jesus, it does so from a unique perspective. The book of Mark is the briefest of the gospel accounts. It is, of course, the one directed initially to the Roman, those who had a mindset appreciative of a Roman viewpoint. That being said, that helps understand or explain to us why it's the briefest because a person who was a Roman, they were used to ruling the world and they wanted things direct and to the point. You typically didn't beat around the bush with a person that was a Roman. They wanted to know what you thought and they wanted it immediately. And that's the way Mark presented Jesus. And so in this gospel account tonight, as you and I think about that aspect, appreciate the key word in many ways of the entire book of Mark is the word immediately. Straightway, Mark uses that word over 41 times in 16 chapters. That's phenomenal because the Lord did things in an action fashion to the point. And yet as you and I reflect on this book of Mark tonight, we're going to take one theme, one matter out of each chapter, something Jesus can teach us. Wouldn't it be fair to say all of us as Christians desire to be more like Jesus? Aren't we told, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2 verse 5. Aren't we also taught in other places, even as Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 1. If it's our desire to be like Christ, let's use the book of Mark and learn one thing out of each chapter that Jesus was like. And then you and I can strive day by day to emulate that. Mark chapter 1. In Mark 1 verse 35, we learn almost immediately at the outset of this book that Jesus got up early, a great while before daylight. And He went out to a solitary place and He prayed. That speaks so many volumes about the attitude and the mindset of Jesus. Here He was, the very Son of God, with all the power of the angelic beings at His fingertips, if you please, and yet He took the time early in the day to devote it to prayer. The obvious question, of course, for you and I is, are you and I people of prayer? If Jesus, being the Son of God, was a person of prayer, you and I can never claim to be like Christ if we too aren't people of prayer. 
You'll notice a few other passages. Aren't we told to pray without ceasing? In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, wasn't it true that before the Lord selected those apostles, He prayed all night long, Luke 6 verse 12. May I submit that if you and I are to be like Christ, we too need to be devoted and dedicated to prayer every day in appreciation of the marvelous aspect that's ours that we can approach the great being of heaven and beseech His aid and also lay upon Him the concerns and cares of our heart. Chapter 2. Not only was our master a man of prayer, but you'll notice in chapter number 2, he was deity. He was divine. Let's take just a moment and rehearse in our thinking the characteristics of Mark 2 verses 1 and following. You recall the scene, the Lord's popularity had already advanced to the point where throngs of people had assembled and gathered to hear Him, to listen to Him. And yet there were some individuals who, there were four of them, and they wanted to bring their friend because he was paralyzed and they wanted Jesus to in fact be able to converse and heal him. But the throng was so they couldn't come and they lifted this man up on the roof and lowered him through the roof right to where Jesus was. You may recall that upon Jesus seeing this man and appreciating the faith of his friends, the Lord in fact pronounced, Thy sins be forgiven thee. And that shocked and startled the crowd because here was a man who was forgiving sins and only God can do that. Mankind can't forgive sins. We can forgive someone when they've trespassed against us. But in the final analysis, sin is a transgression of God's law. We read that, of course, in the New Testament. 1 John 3 verse 4, and so only He can forgive in the final analysis every aspect and reality of sin. And when Jesus here pronounced a forgiveness of this man's sins, those listening understood well the Lord was claiming to be God. May you and I then appreciate the Bible is filled with passages reminding us that Jesus was no merely created being. He was God. In Zechariah 13 7, He is fellow God. We learn in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Time and again as we reflect on that, not only a man of prayer, but he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark chapter 3, Jesus was a man of logic. You and I can often appreciate that in the world in which we live, often religion is relegated to a matter of emotion and nothing else. Logic and analytic approach seemingly is not that significant, but that isn't true in the life of Jesus. Jesus was a man who utilized logic as He reasoned with those about Him, teaching them the unsearchable riches of truth. The scene of Mark chapter 3 was this. There were those in that day and time that would accuse Jesus, you are casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. The Lord launched into a masterful consideration. Given the fact Beelzebub is of course attached to the devil, the Lord reasoned like this, so if I'm casting out the devil using the power of the devil, what sense does that make? The devil's fighting against himself in that case. Jesus said, that isn't the way it is, but if I, by the power of God, am casting out devils, and the power of God has come unto you. And they weren't able to resist His logic. 
It was on that same occasion the Lord quickly pointed out that a house divided against itself shall not stand. Our master was a man of logic. And if you and I would be like him, we too must appreciate and understand the Scriptures to the point where we can say with Isaiah in Isaiah 118, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Aren't we taught in 1 Peter 3.15 to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is within you. As you and I are admonished to be ready with that answer, that implies our diligence so that we too are ready, giving always that answer with the appropriate logic and analytical usage of that wonderful Word of God. These first three chapters prepare us for the next one. Chapter number four. Our master was a man of power. Remember how delightful that would have been to a Roman. As Mark chapter 4 comes near its conclusion, we find that there was a storm that was brewing on the Sea of Galilee, and yet Jesus was fast asleep in the ship. Have you often pondered the reality of what comfort and serenity of life that suggests? Here were the disciples. They were, of course, fearful for their lives, and they went and woke Jesus up, and they cried, Carest thou not that we perish? And yet Jesus was fast asleep. The storm wasn't bothering him. And yet we remember that Jesus at that moment spoke and immediately that storm was quelled. Immediately the waves of that sea became calm. Immediately the wind was done away with. Our master was a man of power. You may recall how impressed those were who were beside him because when they watched the immediacy with which the storm had, was done away, they said, what manner of man is this? that even the waves and the sea obey Him. If Jesus can control nature that way, shouldn't you and I appreciate what a change He can bring in your life and mine, ordering it correctly, directing it in the way that it should go? Jesus was a man of power. I would ask you to consider in Colossians 1 verses 16 and following, we are taught on that occasion that this very one Jesus is the very one by whom everything was created and it was created for Him. As you and I peer into the heavens and we see the vastness of space with its untold numbers of galaxies and stars and other things, our Savior made every one of them. He fashioned them, He orchestrated them, He gave them their properties... And by the way, each and every day, He upholds it all by the word of His power. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. It's a fascinating consideration. And Jesus stated this matter in Matthew 28, 18. All authority, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That power aspect would have been meant a great deal to the Romans, but doesn't it mean a great deal to us? Mark chapter 5. In that chapter, we appreciate that our Savior... Although as powerful as he was, he was very caring. Could I call to your attention the scene we have here? That chapter opens rather bluntly. The Lord Jesus came into a region in which he suddenly was approached by a man who was not only unusual. This man had often been greatly bothersome, it would seem, to those in that area. You remember him? He was the Gadarene demoniac. He was overwhelmed by these demons and he had often been bound, but he had superhuman strength and he would break the chains asunder. 
He lived in the tombs and he went about naked. He approached Jesus, though, and the legion immediately recognized Jesus. For they asked, Why art thou come here to torment us? Jesus cared for that man. There were many, it seemed, in the nearby towns who were afraid of him and wished to have nothing to do with him. But Jesus was concerned about him. He cared for him. So much so that that man, remember, after the legion was cast out, this one was such that he wanted to follow Jesus and be with him. He was so thankful for what the Lord had done. But Jesus said, you go and testify what the Lord has done for you. Isn't it beautiful to think of the way Jesus cared for this one who was an outcast, this one who was afflicted and downtrodden, this one who was beside himself in the eyes of so many. That caring attribute brings you and me to passages like these. In 1 Peter 5, verse number 7, Casting all your care on Him, for He careth for you. We all have cares, and may we never forget that Jesus still cares for us. He doesn't want your life and mine to be overwhelmed in misery and to be overwhelmed in affliction and oppression. He wants us in our nearness to Him to be such that the afflictions are lifted from our shoulders and placed upon His. Mark chapter 6. The Lord was a compassionate man. The scene here is another telling one. The circumstances were such as the Lord had taught for three days and there were large numbers of people who so carefully had followed and listened. That by itself is impressive, isn't it? Can you imagine, in fact, remaining for three days with Jesus so captivated by His message and so enamored by what He had to say? Yet when the evening of that third day came... Some of His disciples said, Send them away that they may go and find things to eat. The Lord, though it says, He was moved with compassion because He was afraid they might faint by the way. And so the Lord at that moment began to put matters such that He said, You feed them. And Peter and Philip and some of the others were a bit concerned as to how they would acquire the funding, the money, as well as the matters to feed them. And of course, Jesus using five loaves and two fishes, fed 5,000 men alone. What do we see about the compassion of Jesus? He was concerned about the fact that they were hungry and He wished to make sure that they, of course, were provided for. One by one through six chapters, we've learned a great deal about Jesus. On to chapter 7 we go. Near the close of chapter 7, we see this magnificent statement in verse 37. Already by that point in the book of Mark, we appreciate that Jesus had been presented and described so lovingly and crowds had thronged about Him with intrigue and interest. And at this point, abruptly it says, He, speaking of Christ, doeth all things well. Mark 7 verse 37. At that point, isn't it amazing that as those witnessed and watched the Master, it was the case that that which He accomplished and that which was His will was perfect. It was all done well. It may be that you have known individuals in your life who have done many things well. It may well be that they have been able to almost wonderfully accomplish a variety of things. But can you and I say we know anybody who can do literally everything well? And yet Jesus could. 
He was a great teacher. He was a masterful one at logically asking others to question what ought to be questioned. He, in fact, with authority, would lead them to appreciate the nature of ultimately what was in their heart. He could control the matters of, the na- of nature and the sea. He did everything well. You and I can strive to employ our talents and our capabilities in such a way that we too can well use them to the glory of God. Our Savior did all things well. Isn't it true as you look at that text? Doesn't it remind us particularly about the absence of sin in His life? You and I know that sometimes when we don't do things well, that there's sin involved. Things have been brought into my life and yours, whereby we have erred in such a way that we've actually committed a fault against God. But you see, Jesus never had that failure. We're taught in Hebrews 4.15, among other places, that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The sinlessness of His life. We, of course, remember that that will lead us to the closing chapters of Mark in just a moment. But before we do that, let's look at chapter 8. Near the end of chapter number 8, our Master was a man of proper values. This immediately leads you and I to consider the following point. Have you ever known someone, maybe even you and I at some point in life, when we valued at that point supremely what was not of supreme value, or we failed to value what was of supreme value. Jesus never got the things like that confused. He had proper values. For that reason, near the close of that chapter in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, He asked these haunting questions, What shall it profit a man? if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And is there any greater series of questions perhaps that he could have asked than that? To those individuals of that day who strove and who in fact labored in all other ways to acquire what this world has to offer, the Lord said in the final analysis, even if you acquire it all but lose your soul at judgment, are you any the better? What a haunting question. And yet it has aided you and I and countless Christians since the day He uttered it to make sure we too are men and women of proper values. Jesus taught in Matthew 6.33 to seek always first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And as the book of Revelation brings before us, that truth will pay eternally grand dividends, doesn't it? Mark chapter 9. As we come to the ninth chapter of Mark, we bring ourselves to a point of noticing one attribute, one truth that was frequently a part of the preaching ministry of Jesus. I realize, and you do as well, that there are many who look upon Jesus and who always seemingly remember the more positive attributes of His preaching. That is to say, His emphasis on love and mercy and His emphasis upon the marvelous grace And there's no denying those. But among all the preachers of the New Testament, none, none preached about hell more than Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48 is a prime example. It was on that occasion that the Lord before a rather sizable audience admonished them by saying, If your right hand offends you, you're better off to cut it off and to go through life with one 
than to have two to be cast into hell. And he, in fact, reiterated the same concerning the foot as well as an eye. And then he launched into this discussion, This place is one where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. It's unceasing, it's eternal and everlasting. Jesus wanted those of His day to understand that there really is a place called hell. It may well be that that topic is unfavorable, and it somewhat makes you and I, as we think about the nature of a place like that, it causes us to squirm. But don't you suppose that's why Jesus talked about it so much? So that we can so live in here that we'll avoid that place and we'll not end up there. Jesus, as He taught about this place called hell, He reiterated several times in that chapter the reality of this place. And later on, He would directly say, it's prepared for the devil and his angels. But we understand well that those who choose to follow the devil will also be consigned there. Aren't you impressed by what we've learned just taking one truth so far from every chapter in Mark? On to chapter 10 we go. As we come to the 10th chapter, notice the lesson text for the evening came out of that chapter. Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45. By this point, the Lord's inching closer and closer to the time of His own crucifixion. But at this moment, He makes this observation. He points out in the midst of these squabbling disciples of His, they were so interested, we want to be the greatest. In fact, they even ask Him, about the nature of what's involved in being the greatest in the kingdom. Don't you suppose that the Lord sometimes was a bit frustrated? Don't you suppose that as often as He had helped to show them by way of example and to teach them by way of truth, and yet they ask Him questions like this? May we say that this wouldn't be the last time they would ask it. But Jesus used this opportunity to talk about Himself. He said, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. I can only imagine that when the days finally came that Jesus was crucified and they reflected back and remembered what He said. Do you suppose they were touched with their own ignorance? Do you suppose they were motivated by their own failure? Here we were squabbling over who's the greatest and He died for us. And He told us He was going to give His life a ransom for many. He did it voluntarily. They didn't forcefully take His life from it. He voluntarily laid it down. John 10 verses 17 and 18. He came and gave His life a ransom for many. He paid the price for my sins and yours and for theirs. Mark chapter 10 is a masterpiece, isn't it, of highlighting for us the nature of the servant character of Jesus. Even though He was a king, He was the servant of all. That prepares us for Mark chapter 11. Isn't it true in this chapter, we again appreciate this, the Lord Himself as great as He was, we find, perhaps highlighted in a way unlike any other, this chapter, His absolute respect for authority. I suppose as each of us think about the nature of authority, aren't we reminded continually of the basic importance of it? When there's disrespect for authority, that opens the floodgates for nearly anything. Jesus understood the nature of authority. 
It was in that chapter that he used that, that opportunity to teach those about him. In Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and following, there were those who in the preceding verse were very upset by Jesus when in fact He overturned the money changers' tables and drove matters out of the temple. The Pharisees and other officials asked Jesus, Who gave you the authority to do this? That was a fair question. In the aftermath of it, though, and in the presentation of its answer, Jesus said, I have a question for you. If you'll answer mine, I'll answer yours. And the question He asked them was this, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? A simple question. But of course, Jesus could read their hearts, John 2.25, and He understood rather well the nature of what it was that that put them in. For you see, Jesus knew that they honored the people, and so if they said of the people, they understood themselves that they would discredit their own consideration. But on the other hand, if they said it was from heaven, then Jesus would immediately ask them, Why then didn't you obey Him? We all remember how they answered. They said, We cannot tell. Jesus said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. But isn't it true, even in that understanding, Jesus appreciated the place of authority. And of course, you and I, as servants of His still today, we understand the importance of authority. The authority resting and always holding true to the truth of God. The organization of the church, the truth concerning worship, the features and attributes concerning the plan of salvation, all of that is etched in the authority of heaven as you and I honor it we then would be like Jesus as we too respect the authority vested in those matters. Mark chapter 12. When we arrive at the 12th chapter again, the Lord had been questioned by those of His day. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and even others had approached our Savior and they had burning questions in their heart, often motivated by simply the desire to cause Him to stumble. But our Savior never stumbled. He only taught the truth. And in this occasion, could I ask you to consider love? Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment. In Mark's rendition or His presentation of this, in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and following, Jesus rather directly, very abruptly said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, this is the greatest commandment. The second one, of course, was likened unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. At this point, as you reflect on then the nature of this Mark chapter 12, verse 30, every other commandment will be a springboard from this one. All the other commandments in one way or another will be an immediate representation of it. For it's true, isn't it, that this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5 verse 3. When those of His own day heard Jesus make this statement, the greatest commandment, as I understand the research surrounding that, it would appear that basically the following was true. The various schools of Jewish thought had often argued about what the greatest commandments were. There were various Jewish schools of thought, and some thought one commandment was the greatest, and some thought that it was another, but the Lord settled that immediately. And the traditions of men had nothing to say about it. 
the greatest of the commandments is the highest appreciation of that authority rested in God and serving Him with all your being. Mark chapters 1 to 12 have brought us then with these observations. We've learned more about what Jesus was really like. On to Mark 13 we go. As we come to this particular chapter, Mark 13, we find in this chapter a powerful elevation of the Word of God. When you and I give thought to this matter, remember Jesus Himself had a part to play in authoring this as He, together with the Father, provided to the Spirit that which was the things to be recorded. One may then have noted, Jesus lifted it so highly. He knew where it came from. The writings of men are just that. They're founded on nothing more scholarly and nothing greater than the mind of men, and therefore they're subject to false law and fallacy. But Jesus, in Mark chapter 13, verse 31, said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Have you ever thought about the history of the Restoration Movement? In fact, even prior to that, centuries have passed and individuals have lived and some have given their life in defense of the truth, and yet the truth lives on. Throughout the world, there have been those who have openly rebelled against it and have, in fact, tried to destroy it, and they have not succeeded. We each remember that in the aftermath of the French Revolution which of course happened almost simultaneously with the American Revolution. A French philosopher named Voltaire made it his life's goal. He said, I will destroy that Bible. He hated it. May I submit to you, Voltaire's long dead, the Word of God lives on. Jesus Himself said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My Word shall not. Aren't you thankful for the unchanging character of the Word of God? Aren't you thankful for this, which a proper, properly valued life can always rest assured of the nature of it? Jesus understood that. And isn't it true that in that very context of Mark 13, He even applied it to the end of time. Men's lives can be so fanciful and so filled with sensationalism as the end of time is described, and yet you and I need not be moved by it. The Bible tells us all we need to know about the end of time. And it's not nearly as fanciful as many would have us believe. There's not going to be any such thing as a rapture. There's no such thing as a tribulation period. There's no such thing as this thousand-year millennial reign. None of it. Because the truth of the Word of God sets us free from all that nonsense. Isn't it true that as we think about that truth, Jesus elevated the Word of God. And you and I, as those to be like Jesus, will always do the same. I would call to your attention, in John 17, 17, wasn't it true that Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Those that would be like Jesus will always value truth. And as you and I seek to do that by the way that we live and that which we speak and preach, we too will lift high the blessed place of truth and always hold it dear. On to Mark 14 we go. As we come to Mark 14, we are very close now to the end of His life in the flesh. But in the 14th chapter of Mark, may I ask you to notice the determination in the mind of our Master. 
By this point, we appreciate specifically in verse 50 of that chapter that under the hour of the darkness, all the disciples fled. They left Jesus by Himself. Doesn't that teach us something? Here was one determined to do what the plan and will of God was, and even if everyone forsook Him, He was not going to be deterred from His plan. I would hope that all of us would learn a majestic lesson in that. The truth isn't determined by a majority, is it? You and I must be committed to the Lord even when those around us, our friends and neighbors and co-workers, if they even choose to apostatize, we must never. Jesus was determined. And in fact, several verses of the Bible, such as Revelation 2 verse 10, encourage you and I to have that mindset, Be thou faithful unto death, He said, and I will give thee a crown of life. In fact, do we not read in the Revelation that there were certain occasions in which Jesus specifically told various congregations like the one at Pergamos, you are where Satan's seed is, but you've got to be faithful. You cannot give up on the truth. And thus, as the Lord admonished them, He does so to us. May you and I be faithful, always devoted and determined to that which is the will and plan of God. Mark 15, we find in this chapter an impressive lesson of submissiveness. By this point, the Lord has been convicted. Those mockeries of a trial have brought the sentence of death upon His head, and the hour of the cross is now virtually upon Him. And although He frankly admitted that He had power to call angels and reveal or remove Himself from the terror and the agony of the hour, he submitted to the plan of God. He submitted. He didn't elevate his own personal convenience and matters above the will of God, but rather he was determined to submit to that which was the plan of God. What about your life and mine? Do I elevate my preferences, my conveniences, my desires above God's will? If so, I'm not like Jesus but may I always subjugate my will, bending my stubborn will so that I can be more like Him. Our Lord was submissive. That means that even when you and I find things hard or inconvenient, if it's the will of God, we must do it. Philippians 2 verse 3 reminds us of that again later in the writings of Paul. And even, of course, we appreciate in Ephesians 5 21, that message of submission that all of us are given. May I submit to you, 15 chapters have come and gone, and only one chapter remains. Mark chapter 16, and as we look at it, let's use that to close our lesson. The final closing chapter of this briefest of the gospel accounts, this book of Mark, brings us the following message. Jesus had been placed on the cross in the previous chapter, and we even remember the centurion was motivated to say, Truly this man was the Son of God. That centurion was convinced. He really was the Son of God. And as the next chapter opens, the ladies come to the tomb early in the morning and they find the stone rolled away and the tomb is empty. And there's a beautiful message of victory. A message of triumph. A message of celebration and jubilation. We begin to see those apostles as word spreads. The ladies go back and tell them, the body isn't there. 
Soon Jesus appears to them and, of course, confirms in their hearts the fact that He was risen. And in Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse number 9, we have what some consider to be a very controversial ending to the book of Mark. Some Bibles actually close the book of Mark at Mark 16, 8. I'm convinced that that's a mistake. Mark 16, verse 20 is the last verse in the book of Mark. Those last verses in that chapter present to us a message of victory and triumph as the resurrected Jesus is appreciated and as those apostles begin to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ worldwide. It's in that very chapter, verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And with that, the book of Mark closes. A masterpiece, isn't it? A masterpiece of action. A masterpiece of appealing to the, of the Roman mind. And of course, you and I are still blessed with it. We've learned many things about the book of Mark tonight. Many things about Jesus. And if you and I would be like Jesus, we too will have all the attributes that we've studied tonight. Everything from being prayerful in chapter 1 to understanding the triumph and the victory that's ours as Christians in chapter 16. But of course, only if we're a Christian can we have hope for all those blessings. And so the question comes to you and me. Are you a faithful member of the body of Christ? Are you trying to pattern your life after the things we've learned this evening? If you are, then may you continue that journey throughout life, striving each day to be more like Jesus. But if you've never begun that journey, why not begin it tonight? Allow us to assist you as, of course, you make confession without being preceded by your repentance and belief. If you have become a Christian, though, but need to be rededicated, we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. An opportune time is now before us as we're about to sing a song of encouragement. If we could be of help to anyone in either of these ways, or even as prayers of strength, we'd be delighted to do that. We would urge you to come and invite you to do so while together we stand and while we sing.